If you have a brain, you have bias. So let's just own it. Some biases help us by simplifying our decision-making process. Other biases hold us back by impacting who gets hired and promoted and even who we approach to be our friends. Welcome to Breaking the Bias, a podcast where we interview impact makers who are breaking the bias when it comes to inclusion and equity. Because sharing our stories is how real belonging happens. I like to say mindfulness isn't a break glass in emergency type of thing. It's something that you cultivate over time and it's sort of building a stronger and stronger foundation so that when you are faced with very challenging moments, you're much more resilient in that moment. Today, Consciously Unbiased founder Ashish Kaushal virtually sits down with Cliff Smith, author of the brand new book, Mindfulness Without the Bells and Beads, an EY's global mindfulness network leader. They dive into what mindfulness is exactly and what it isn't, why you don't need to be spiritual to benefit from mindfulness, real world practices that can help you grow your mindfulness, why meditation literally changes your brain, how cultivating mindfulness can help us overcome biases and build inclusion, and much more. Now onto their conversation. So can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to become a leader on mindfulness? Yeah, so I'd say my first foray in the mindfulness was when I was 11 years old. Um, you know, I do this keynote and I'm normally on stage, thousands of people dressed in a suit. And people typically don't peg me for being somebody who was raised by a single mother of three, who grew up in welfare, who lived in government subsidized housing for much of my childhood. And I'm not bummed about my childhood, but that's really what got me connected to mindfulness. My mom entered me into a contest essentially for poor kids to win access to a martial arts program in my hometown. And I was one of five lucky kids who won. And I learned three things in that program that were associated with mindfulness, although it wasn't such a buzzword then as it is today. And so those, those three things were learning to become mindful of unhelpful internal dialogue, right? Those internal thoughts that say, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not rich enough, tall enough, whatever enough to even attempt to do the thing I'm interested in. So learn to become mindful of that internal dialogue and move forward despite it. The second thing was learning to become mindful of fear, learning how fear shows up in my body physiologically, learning how it shows up in my mind and learning to move forward despite the experience of fear. And then the third thing was really about focus and concentration, learning where to keep my, learning how to keep my attention where I wanted to it to be as opposed to where the distracting world wants it to be. And then, so I, I, once I started to apply those skills in my life, it radically changed the trajectory of it. Now, how did I become a mindful, the mindfulness leader at EY is a, is a, a story around, you know, creating a, a niche in the, in the firm that people really were responding to. Uh, I was a client server leading one of our accounts in our government public sector practice. And then I started to do this, this talk on the side. I mean, my first group that I did it with were you know, six EAs around a dusty conference room table in a building we're not even in anymore. And six turned to 12, turned to 24, 48. And I got a call one day from one of our event planners. Her name was Jen Shaw. She said, hey, Cliff, I hear you've been doing a talk around the firm that's getting some good reviews. Well, we have kind of an issue. Our CEO, Mark Weinberger, the CEO at the time, he, he had to cancel a keynote. And would you be willing to step in and do your talk for an hour? Uh, oh, by the way, it's to 3,600 people. Nice. And so that's like a drop the phone kind of moment, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, uh, yeah, I'll do it. And um, they sandwiched me between uh, uh, New York Times bestselling 
author, person you would know, I won't say his name. Uh, and also be between that person and a Harvard professor who actually does a lot of work on unconscious bias. And my session was rated the highest of that, of that big event. And so that caught the eye of some people and it got me connected to some of our leaders in the firm. And I started to share with them the, the interest that we were having uh, in mindfulness in this network that, that we created the mindfulness, the EY mindfulness network, we had an eight week course and we're teaching mindfulness. And, and so it took me a couple of years, but I convinced them to help create this new position at EY and to move our mindfulness training into our learning and development curriculum uh, where it could have a broader impact. So, you know, two things came to mind, the pressure of following a New York times person. And then even though you're in the middle, so there's a little less pressure, but then ending it with a Harvard professor who could probably contradict everything you say the first three things that you said about mindfulness probably helped you get through that situation and actually thrive in it. Right. And the, the other part I was thinking about was I'm sure that was critical for you to get through basic training within the, within the U S army. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think basic training, it's called basic for a reason. I mean, they start at the lowest level it's crawl, walk, run. And so uh, you can have zero competency, competency in anything, uh, and they can get you to a, to a certain level of competency. So I would say that, what it did was help me a little bit manage the fear of those moments, right? Because there was, it was the first time I was ever away. I mean, the day I left for the army, I, I barely graduated from high school on a Friday and I was in the army the following Monday. And <laughs> that day I left for the army, I learned something about myself. I learned that I was absolutely terrified of flying. It was the first time I'd ever flown in a plane. You know, and I'm like white knuckling the armrest, the heart's pounding in my chest, sweat beating. Clearly, I got through that situation, but I realized this was something I was going to have to face and overcome in my life if I was going to explore the world the way I'd hoped. What I didn't know, though, was that my first assignment after basic training was going to be a place called Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Mm. I don't know if you know a lot about Fort Bragg, but they jump out of airplanes. <laughs> yeah, they jump out of planes all the time. So yeah. I had the opportunity very shortly after joining the military to volunteer to go to airborne school and face that fear. And what I learned was when you can feel that level of fear in your body and in your mind, move through it and be okay on the other side, when you can do that consistently, there's really no goal that's out of reach. And so that was the first time I was able to apply that, um, that sort of being mindful of fear and moving through it in something that was like the most fear I'd ever felt in my life to that point. Maybe one other thing that was, I was more afraid of at that point in my life when I was that young, but um, you know, that the fear of jumping out of a plane was, was real for me. And once I realized I could have that uncomfortable emotion and sensation and still be okay, it was really life-changing and allowed me to, to, to do a lot of things that were, were scared, that made me scared, big or small, right? Even yeah. just asking somebody for their phone number is kind of a scary thing when you think about what the internal voice and critic says. Oh, absolutely. Can you define my, mindfulness for us? Yeah, so my my definition is eerily close to John Kabat-Zinn. So mindfulness is an innate human skill that allows us or human innate human ability to keep our attention in the present moment on purpose. And then it's allowing that present moment to unfold without getting too caught up in our automatic thoughts and judgments. And so where I differ a little bit from his is that um, his is present moment awareness without judgment, like without, without thought or judgment. I think it's okay for the thought to be there. It's okay for the judgment to be there. It's what do you do with that thought or judgment when it arises, right? You can just allow it to, to come and go and not have it impact you. So it's not not having any thoughts. 
uh, it's not being lost in your thoughts that I think is the key difference. By cultivating that skill, you know, you're able to respond with more poise, even in high pressure, complex situations, rapidly changing situations. You can be more present to moments of your, your life, work life and home life that, that matter um, and really navigate the ups and downs of life with a bit more resilience and a bit less stress at sort of its base level. So it really shifts you from being a bystander in your life to an active participant. Almost. Yeah, it allows you to show up to more <clears throat> moments of your life as opposed to showing up in the story of your life that is, is sort of the running commentary in your head. I love it. Living life through your, through your senses, through the five senses, as opposed to through, again, the inner story, the inner dialogue. So what do you think are some of the big misconceptions people have about mindfulness? Well, first of all, I think one of them is that you have to be a spiritual person, right? That you have to um, go out and get a, a yoga mat, that you have to get a special cushion to do your meditations on, that you have to burn incense or get a special bell. I think you can, not I think, I know you can uh, reap the benefits of mindfulness uh, by doing some very practical exercises, the core exercises of mindfulness, um, and, uh, and they're not actually complex. They're simple, although they're not necessarily easy, but they're simple, right? Mm -hmm. You don't need to spend an hour a day doing it. You can start small, actually start with the smallest incremental step possible. One minute doing one minute awareness of breath exercise, and then expanding that to two minutes, to three minutes, to five minutes, to 12 minutes. And I would say the, some of the most recent research that I've seen, uh, a doctor, uh, Amish, Amish Jha out of university of Miami, I think is where she's at. She's done some recent research. She's doing some mindfulness training for the military. She's found that 12 minutes is a, is a pretty good number where they start to see some real benefits of mindfulness through consistent practice over time. And then the third one is that you have to have an underlying condition. What do I mean by that? Most of the major advocates or the prominent advocates for mindfulness have a story about how they hit rock bottom and mindfulness helped them out. Like I had debilitating you know, self-esteem issues and I found mindfulness in it and it helped me out. Or I have extreme anxiety and I had to break down on national television. And so I found mindfulness or I had uncontrollable uh, stress uh, responses at the workplace. I found mindfulness and it helped me, you know, help me recover from that. And those are things that mindfulness has been known to help with. But when it's framed that way, it, it sort of gives the, gives off this vibe that you have to be broken in order to lean over and, and, and use mindfulness and use it to benefit you. Yeah. But it also can help you go from good to great, right? Mm -hmm. I think mindfulness is where executive coaching was maybe 20, 25 years ago. 20, 25 years ago, no self-respecting executive in the corporate world would say they were getting executive coaching. Why? Because it would make, they would think that other people would think they need coaching. Like, oh, they're weak. They, they have to have coaching. Even though they had these, you know, amazing athletes, folks like Michael Jordan, who were awesome, still getting coached. Why? Did, were they getting coached because they sucked? No, they were getting coached because they wanted to go from good to great or great Absolutely. to even, even better. And mindfulness can help you do that too. You yeah. can be doing just fine and you can bring mindfulness on board and take your leadership and your performance to the next level without sacrificing well-being. And, um, and I think it's, it's really can be a key part of rest and recovery in an overall effort for peak performance, right? No athlete makes their peak without rest and recovery. 
And mindfulness can be a part of that too. And I think, I think sometimes people think that mindfulness is going to dull your edge. It's going to make you complacent or not want to be a go-getter for whatever it is. It's not going to totally radically change your personality. It's it's going to change what you notice in your life and how to be, how to respond more wisely to life as opposed to react to it. Absolutely. You know, you brought up some thoughts to me. I, um, about two years ago, I also started practicing two things. One was this idea of sometimes you got to slow down to speed up, mm. right? Because you always run to burn out, but I go, you'll become less pro- productive over time because there's a lot of deter- deterioration there. So what I do now between meetings is I will, even if I am staying in the same room, I will leave the room, close the door, do the box breathing method when I turn the handle. So I have at least 30 seconds to, to take breaths, to slow down, reset, before I get to the next meeting, so I'm focused on it. And that's really been helpful. So I would love to hear if you can give two or three um, nuggets of where people can start with the mindfulness journey so that they can actually start applying it and see it works and then sort of learn more from it from your book. Yeah. So one of the things I would like to touch on though, right before I do that is this, this idea of box breathing. So box breathing is a really great tool and it can help you do a lot of things. It can help you sort of, uh, you know, drop in, and, and sort of calm the body down, calm the central nervous system down. Uh, and it's a really powerful tool. But one of the things I try to distinguish, I mean, I, I do distinguish it very clearly in my keynotes and in the book are the differences between things like mindfulness and uh, breathing exercises, right? There's, you know, meditation, the term meditation, the term mindfulness, those are very commonly used terms, but there's still a lot of misunderstanding about those terms. And then also, unfortunately, a ton of deliberate misrepresentation of those terms in order to get you to buy a product or buy a service. And so if I could just take a moment here and draw some distinctions around those terms, I'd love that. Yeah, absolutely. The relationship between meditate, excuse me, the relationship between mindfulness and meditation is like the the relationship between fitness and exercise, Mm -hmm. right? You go to the gym and exercise, not so that you're fit in the gym, you go to the gym and exercise so that when you're outside the gym, you have a higher baseline level of fitness. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness and meditation have the same relationship. You do certain uh, meditation exercises so that when you're not doing those exercises, you have a higher baseline level of mindfulness. And then the term meditation is like the term exercise. If I told you I exercised yesterday, what did I do? You have no idea what I did. Exercise is just an umbrella term for literally thousands of other activities. Mm-hmm. Meditation is exactly the same. <clears throat> right? Uh, And why do you do certain exercises? You do certain exercises because you want certain fitness outcomes, right? So if I want to have strong legs, maybe I'll do squats. If I want to have a strong chest, I'm going to do bench presses. If I want to have better cardiovascular, I'm going to, maybe I'll do, I'll, I'll, I'll do some running every day. Meditation is exactly the same. So I could take you on an elaborate guided meditation where you're walking along a pristine beach. You can hear the waves crashing, you can feel the cool breeze against your skin and you can see the deep orange of the sun just peeking up over the horizon. And that can be a very powerful meditation and get you super, super relaxed. But that's not a mindfulness meditation. That doesn't do anything to boost your level of mindfulness. It's a guided visualization meditation, very useful, very powerful, not mindfulness. Sure. I could give you a syllable, a word or a phrase to repeat over and over again, or even a series of phrases. And those could be very powerful meditations, maybe even get you you know, into some trance-like states, even build compassion, even empathy, very powerful things, but those aren't mindfulness meditations. They're mantra meditations, those types of things. And, and again, very powerful, very useful, but not mindfulness. 
there's two primary types of meditations used in tandem that serve to boost your mindfulness, focused attention, open monitoring and open awareness. They're sort of interchangeably used, but this, those two used in tandem that boost mindfulness. And I think one of the things I see um, in marketing is that, you know, any, anytime you close your eyes, people call that mindfulness. And people are trying to slap this word mindfulness onto everything. Executive presence courses are now called executive presence and mindfulness courses. Why? Because they know if they have the word mindfulness in there, maybe they'll get an extra sale or two. Yeah. And this and this noise, I have a whole I have a whole chapter in the book, you know, finding the signal in the mindfulness noise. I mean, there's so much over marketing and hyping of mindfulness. You know, people don't know what they're getting. They mm-hmm. think they're getting mindfulness because that's what the, that's what the title says, but they're not. You choose any app, any app that's out there, maybe not any app, the most prominent apps that are out there, you go on there, there's like 40,000 meditations and they're not all mindfulness. And a lot of people go there and they, they're doing one meditation and it may be helping them on something, but it may not be helping them reap the scientifically validated um, benefits of mindfulness because the exercise they're doing isn't mindfulness. And so I think there's something there too that, uh, well, I mean, I'm personally compassionate about sort of pulling away the noise and getting to the core exercises so that people can actually benefit so they can be informed consumers as well. It's almost like you're, you have to exercise the right muscle, right? If I want to become, trying to increase my stamina, like lifting weights isn't the right exercise, right? Necessarily right. it might be that running, you have to build it up. So same thing with mindfulness, you have to push the right buttons and use the right muscles to, to train, right? Yeah. And that's a that's perfect, perfect example too. And there are certain things that are formal practices and informal practices, right? Like you, if you're trying to get fit, right, you, maybe you're going to go to the gym, you're going to, you're going to work out, get your body in the right shape. But then you might also say, you know what, I'm also going to take the stairs at work because that supports my overall fitness goals. But just taking the stairs, isn't going to help you reap all the fitness goals that you can. <laughs> and so, Mindfulness has formal mindfulness exercises, meditations where you sit down and you do the meditation 15 minutes a day, every day. And then there's informal practices, those types of practices that you could use between meetings, just like you said. And so one of those practices, I think, sort of led to this question was, you know, what's something you might use between meetings in order to, you know, that's a mindfulness exercise to really help you reset and recenter. And so I use a modified form of the stop practice that was designed or or developed by Elisha Goldstein. So STOP is an acronym. It's STOP, take a breath, observe, and then his is just proceed, mine is pose and proceed. So STOP, you just stop what you're doing. You know, it's like pause for a moment, take a breath and notice the sensations of breathing for each of those breath, breath coming in, breath going out. You can, you can make it a deep breath, but you don't have to. The, the point here is to notice the sensations of breathing. And then uh, O stands for observe. Observe something in your external environment, right? Something on your desk, maybe the pattern of carpet, painting on the wall, and then turn that observation inwardly and observe what's the inner weather pattern, what thoughts are here, what emotions, not trying to push them away, not trying to suppress them, but just observing the fact that they're here. So if there's anxiety here, observing the fact that there's anxiety. If there's anger, observe that. It doesn't have to be negative. If there's excitement, observe that. And then P stands for pose and proceed. Pose the question silently, what's important now? And then allow what comes up in response to that question to help inform how you proceed so that you can proceed with intention. So you can respond thoughtfully versus react. So you can use that practice between meetings, but you can also use it in the middle of a conversation that's getting a little heated 
And you don't want to say something you're going to regret that's going to exacerbate the problem or damage your relationship. Right. So that can okay. help be much more thoughtful. Um, and so that practice, it, it seems like oh, that would take a long time to do all that. Well, once you do it a few times, maybe a few dozen times, you become much more proficient at it and you can do it in one second, two seconds, three seconds, five seconds, whatever. Again, it's not that box breathing's not good. It's not that four, seven, eight breathing's not good. Other yoga breathing techniques, they're good. They do, they have a lot of benefits. Mindfulness isn't one of them. What is the neuroscience behind mindfulness? There's an organization in the US, the American American Mindfulness Research Association, like amra.org, that sort of lists every year how many publications there are in research uh, around mindfulness. And it's like a hockey stick kind of a chart, right? Like in 2000, there's like one study a year. And then it's just boom, boom, boom. Now it's up to like, I don't know, 1700 studies a year. So first thing is, is to know that there's a lot more eyeballs on this as an issue, right? Um, I think because studies are pointing in a very positive direction, many, many more researchers are coming aboard to, to take a look at it. I would say, so the research that I typically talk mm -hmm. about in my keynotes is research um, that's neuro, uh, like what, what's, what's changing in the brain, the neuroscience, like what is, what are the physical changes in the brain, you know, using fMRI scanners. So things that can't be like faked, you know, like a self-report, like, am I more mindful? Yes or no? Like, those are great. Those are great research studies. Um, but there's some bias in there, right? Like we want to think after we spent eight weeks of training <coughs> that we are better at X or Y yeah. and they're useful. And if they're pointed in the same direction, that's a positive thing. But I really like, um, I like research that is, you know, it's not subjective. So you're looking at different parts of the brain. So one of the things that I've seen, you know, um, increased size of your anterior cingulate cortex, which is connected to your prefrontal cortex. You know, it's sort of like part of your brain that allows you to speak. It allows you to notice consequences of your actions. So this part of your brain is more active and it also is, has more thickness, more cortical thickness, reduces the size of your amygdala and activity in amygdala. That's, you know, fight, flight, or freeze, the seat of your emotions. This is like sort of your survival, your, your, your guard dog, if you will. Yeah. Uh, so that's where you're coming from when you're more reactive as opposed to thoughtfully responding. So it reduces the size of that increases the size of your hippocampus, right? Your hippocampus is responsible for, for many things. One of which is to move short-term memory into long-term memory and long-term memory are where insights arise when new data comes in and interacts with it. And so it's, it's increasing that the size of that also increases the size of your insula. You could think of your insula sort of like your sage or saintly self. If you have any loving relationships, friendships, it's your insula helping you feel that feeling of connection and empathy. And so what they're seeing is that these changes in, in, in the structural and functional changes in the brain are correlated with an ability to, to be more re responsive to life as opposed to reacting in ways that we later regret, giving us a, a choice, right? Increasing that space between stimulus and what is often automatic habitual reaction and mm -hmm. change it to stimulus thoughtful response or stimulus mindful response, if you will. So there you go. There's a science behind this and your, your brain actually physically reacts from these conditions, which is amazing. And it is, it does take consistent practice over time. I like to say mindfulness isn't a break glass in emergency type of thing. It's something that you cultivate over time and it, it's sort of building a stronger and stronger foundation so that when you are faced with very challenging moments, you're much more resilient in that moment. Now, of course you could do a practice for the first time when you're at rock bottom and it can lead to some 
support for you. Um, but the vast majority, the vast benefits of mindfulness come through consistent practice over time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Not a quick fix. In, in our diversity um, and inclusion efforts, we always talk about building habits because I go, it's one thing to like be inspired by it or to go and do something about it. But life comes at you. And if you don't turn it into a piece of who you are, it's not really going to help you, you know? Yeah, I say the same thing with my keynotes. I, I can inspire somebody. I have an hour with them. I can get them super motivated. They leave the they leave the conference like on cloud nine. They're like, this is awesome. I am good. This is going to change my life. That was so inspiring. He, he went from poverty to prosperity using those techniques. I'm totally going to do it. And then Monday shows up and he's got 110 emails in his inbox. And he's like, whatever, this falls, falls away. My goal when I do my keynote is to convince people to take the eight-week course. Yeah. Because the eight-week course is where they're actually going to reap the benefits and start to lay down the behavior, the patterns of routine behavior that are going to lead to all of those benefits that we all read about, uh, about mindfulness and the, you know, in, in every magazine that you see on the rack in the grocery store. Absolutely. I love it. In your book, Mindfulness Without the Bells and Beads, talk about the catch and release technique. Can you tell us more about this and how, what kind of impact it can have? Yeah. So catch and release for me has been life-changing, right? This is what allowed me to uh, learn Chinese. You know, I was in the army for about three years. It was time for me to re-enlist or get out, right? I'd signed up for four years and I went to see a re-enlistment officer and she printed out a list of jobs that the army had a need for at the time. And one of those jobs, Chinese linguists stood out to me as being super interesting. But the first thought that I had in that moment, you know, I barely graduated high school. The first thought I had in that moment when I looked at that job, had the desire for that job to come up. The next thing that came up was a thought that said, hey, buddy, don't you remember you failed high school English, your native language? You really think you can learn one of the most difficult languages on the planet? Right. That's my first use of of catch and release. I thankfully I caught the fact that I was having that thought. I was no, as soon as I caught the fact that I was having it, I was no longer lost in it and was able to release it. it I was essentially re- released from its power mm. and I was able to a- attempt to do the thing that I wanted to do. And so I, I re-enlisted and, and went to, to Chinese language school. Catch so really, you tell yourself to release it. it. It wasn't, it wasn't about telling myself anything. I didn't have to replace it with anything. You've probably heard the, 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 the phrase, name it to tame it when it comes to challenging emotions, right? Like anger. If you can name an emotion like anger while it's happening, you're immediately not lost in it. Immediately. You're, you know you're angry, right? You're immediately not lost in it. And so you're not uh, automatically, habitually operating from it, right? You've, you've come from the lost part, like being lost in anger to being present in this moment. And from that spot, you can make wiser choices, right? Instead of, instead of automatically saying the thing that's going to ruin your relationship, anger's still there. Yeah. You're still here. Anger's still on board, but you're present to make a decision, taking into consideration second and third order impact. Mm-hmm. Catch and release is the same thing for unhelpful internal dialogue, unhelpful internal beliefs. If you catch the ruminating mind in the moment, you're no longer lost in the rumination. You're no longer captured, captivated by that rumination. And therefore you're released from it and you can make the wiser choice. And so catch and release over time, you'll begin to catch and release many, many different things. You'll see it show up in your relationships with your, with your parents in relationships with your spouse or partner, relationships at work where you're about ready to say something, you catch it. 
release it. You, and then you realize I didn't get into a huge drag out fight with this person because I didn't do something like I did less. Yeah. It, it just becomes this thing where you can, you know, you're about ready to ask somebody for their number. You want to, you know, you're interested in them. The, the internal critic comes up. She's not going to like you. She's not going to be in the, mm-hmm. you know, bald guys with, you know, whatever, whatever that internal non cheerleader is. Sure. As soon as you catch it, you're not lost in it and you can make a different choice. And so it's not, it's not some special technique where you have to like, it's not like um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy where you catch the thought and then you have an argument with it and try to find different, you know, you know, you're, you're like luring being a lawyer, like, well, what else is the evidence? Is there any other evidence that I'm not an idiot? You know, that kind of thing. No, you just know that that's a thought, right. And it's, it's a technique that, I would say that you want to use in accord in accordance with in accordance with these other foundational practices like awareness of breath practice every day because they're they're self-reinforcing. As you gain attentional control through formal, you know, awareness of breath practices and other true mindfulness practices, you're able to catch more. You're noticing more and more of your internal mental patterns. Many of these thought patterns are hovering below the level of your conscious awareness, but they have a huge impact on your behavior and the things that you think are available to you in this life. And so as you gain more attentional control, as you gain more awareness of your internal thought patterns, you're able to catch more and more and see where you have these patterns that have been unhelpful for you. Patterns that may have been extremely useful when you were a kid, but aren't useful today as an adult. And so all of this sort of becomes grist for the mill to notice your inner world as much as you're noticing your external world as well. By catching and naming it, you, you're now in control of it. it, prevents you from going spiral into analysis paralysis or just going down a rabbit hole, right? You're now saying, okay, I know what it is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with it the way I want to. And it, and it does take practice, right? Yeah. It's not like, okay, now I know catch and release. I'm good, right? Yeah. It, it does take time because you'll still get, I still get caught up in things and you know, one of the things consistent practice does is it helps you catch earlier and earlier, mm-hmm. right? You know, you know, instead of ruminating for half an hour, maybe you're only ruminating for 15 minutes or maybe only five minutes. So the, the more you have a consistent practice, the more likely you are to catch the fact that you're lost in something. Absolutely. So what are some concrete ways that practicing mindfulness is beneficial to the workplace specifically? I'd say one of the big ones that gets talked about a lot is this idea of multitasking. There's a few exercises that I'll do in some of my courses that just highlight that multitasking is really a myth. Like you can't, you're not doing two things at the same time and you're not being more efficient, even though it feels that way. And I, I talk about this in the book and put, take people through an example there. But one of the things that a consistent mindfulness practice can help you do is, is to notice when you're get, being pulled away and to create a, a situation where you can single task on your most important things. And when you're, when you're doing that, you're giving them your best attention. You're giving them your, 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 your best sort of brain cycles so that you can do uh, better work. You know, if you have two tasks and they're both important and you go back and forth, it's going to take you longer and you're more likely to make errors on both of those tasks. But sure. if you just decide I'm going to do this one, I'm going to focus on this one and I'm going to focus on this one. Both of those work products are going to be better and mm-hmm. you're going to get them both done in less time than if you're switching back and forth between your two computers or whatever. And so I think that's a very practical way that mindfulness can help you in the workplace personally, but it also helps in a broader sense. 
you know, there's some work that, uh, you know, companies in the medical insurance field, I'm not going to name any specific companies just because I, for who I work for, but there are, there are companies that have, you know, brought mindfulness into the workplace and really done some great measurement on what did it do for their productivity, productivity? What did it do for reducing attrition costs? What did it do for increasing employee engagement? What did it do for re reducing medical costs? And in all of those incident instances that I'm, that I'm speaking of, they were all positive, right? They saved the company money. They increased productivity. Employees were much more engaged, you know, and, and I don't think mindfulness in the corporate world, I mean, maybe I'm biased. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> mindfulness in the corporate world is about just eking out a couple more minutes of productivity. It's just, there's too much positive benefit on the well-being side. Yeah, I, I frame it beyond just well-being and spirituality because I think it does a lot of these other things and not everybody wants to ask for help, right? You know, uh, men in particular, even if things are super challenging, super stressed, you don't see a lot of men raising their hand saying, hey, can I get a therapist? I really need to work through some stuff. They don't ask for help. But these folks will line up in, for two hours to take a class that's going to help them get a little bit of an edge in their performance or a little bit of edge in, in their leadership. It doesn't matter to me why they come to my class. Mm -hmm. They will get those leadership benefits because there's measurable leadership benefits from, from the, my program. They will get performance benefits. It, there's cl it's clear that mindfulness helps performance. They're also going to get the well-being benefits too. Yeah. So by framing it a little bit wider, like this whole, this whole coaching thing, I'm going to reach the people who have been like, you know, not really interested in, in raising their hand and asking for help. That's a good problem to solve for, right? Like helping people feel comfortable asking for help. That's a big, that's a big issue. And I know a lot of people are working on that and that's one way to tackle it. There's another way to tackle it. Make sure that they can access it without asking for help. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. I love it. How can mindfulness create a more inclusive workplace? Yeah. So I think a couple ways that mindfulness does that and actually non-mindfulness as well. So part of my course, I, I'm, I'm, as you could probably tell the way I draw this distinction between mindfulness exercises and non-mindfulness exercises. In my book, I outline exercises that are designed to increase your empathy and designed to increase your levels of compassion. While those, those aren't mindfulness exercises in and of themselves, they're often accompanied or, or part of mindfulness programs. M my class is the same way. Right. I want I want these in there. I put them towards the end. I'm very clear that these are compassion building, empathy building. And because they're often in the same group, mm -hmm. that's one of the ways that can help with inclusion. You know, these uh, you know, these meditations that are designed to help us see common humanity are extremely valuable to know that both of us have a body and a mind. Both of us have thoughts and emotions. Both of us have had, you know, physical and emotional pain and suffering. Both of us want to be happy, you know, yeah. really taking through, take, taking people through meditations that highlight that and allow them to notice that about people they're close to. And even, and especially noticing that about people that they're averse to people that they know they don't agree with, you know, pulling them through a meditation that, that has them notice the similarity between them and somebody on the other side of the aisle somebody on, in another country. It's like lifting a heavy weight and it starts to flex that empathy muscle, flex that compassion muscle. So it's stronger. One of the things mindfulness does do though, is that you begin to notice how your mind works. 
how you create stories that aren't in service to your goals or your happiness. And then there's the point where you start to realize, hey, wait, that's happening to them too. That's happening to this other person too. Maybe that's why they're reacting to me in that way. And then when you start to see how much you've maybe created some suffering for yourself and start to give yourself a little bit of like, oh, then you, you automatically compassion can arise from that. Empathy can arise from that. Yeah. Um, And then there's also some, there are some studies. I I don't know the, I can't cite them exactly, but there, there've been some studies I could get back to you on it that show that uh, consistent mindfulness practice has reduced uh, age and race-based unconscious biases uh, in a controlled study. And so there's some stuff, there's some actual science around that as well. I'd love to see that. A conscious same bias, we talk about micro progressions. I'm not sure if Holly explained to you what they are, but essentially they're positive ways to address aggressions within your workplace. So think about uh, one example of micro progression is I tend to, in the past, cut people off when I was talking to them because I wanted to get my point across. But what does that subconsciously send to you? It sends a signal that you're not important to me, your ideas aren't important to me, which isn't really what I'm intending, but that's what's the reaction of what's happening. So now I actively listen digest what you're saying and then respond to what you're asking for rather than me just barfing my ideas on you. So what's one micro progression that comes to mind for you that we could apply in the workplace? Yeah. So, I mean, essentially you've sort of described an exercise that uh, we use in our internal class here um, where we have people, uh, and this is actually from a program uh, from a uh, search inside yourself leadership Institute And it's basically a listening exercise where you get two people together. One person speaks for two minutes about a particular prompt. Other person listens. They're not allowed to talk, right? They don't have to like stare like this, but they can do gestures and like, uh uh-huh. But they're not allowed to talk. And so what that does is it helps amp. It's because we're swinging the pendulum so far, they actually can see their impulse to speak so much come up and then not act on it, right? Uh, over and over again to really give the participants a, a, an idea. And then they switch and they, the other person has to do it too, to see how often the automatic impulse to come in and give your point before you even have listened to the other person, right? And so we cultivate that in this other course, a couple other exercises we do as well. Um, and then we have them do it in the field, in their conversations, in their meetings to notice what does it do to the relationship when you give your undivided attention to somebody um, for two minutes or three minutes? What does it do for the other side? And so we ask them that. And uh, consistently, the folks who were the speakers are like, I've really felt like I was listened to for the first time ever or the first time since I've been here, that kind of thing. I mean, we've had people tear up, you know, because yeah. they had someone literally give them undivided attention for only two minutes. I mean, what does that say about our freaking modern world that giving somebody attention for two minutes is that uh, miraculous? And so I think that, I don't know if that fits exactly with what you're looking for, but that's definitely a thing that consistently people come back and say, I've been using this with my spouse. I've been using this with my coworkers. You know, this isn't, although I'm primarily teaching it in the workforce, people notice the benefits across their whole life. I mean, our lives are like a spider web, right? You can't spider web. You can't step on this spot without it reverberating through the whole structure. And this is the same with mindfulness. You teach, you teach them something here and it reverberates throughout their whole life. Um, and in, in, in a very, in a very positive way. Yeah, I love it. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add that I haven't asked you about? I really enjoyed this conversation today. Yeah. I mean, I would say, look, 
you know, mindfulness is a practice that can be accessible by anybody. Um, you don't have to be spiritual. Uh, you don't need to buy any accessories, right? No beads, no bells, no incense, no special cushion. Um, you don't need an hour to do it. You can start very small and you certainly don't need to be at rock bottom, right? You don't need to be a burnout. You don't have to have an underlying condition to practice and benefit from it, right? It can help you go from good to great. And, and also, if you don't like the label mindfulness or meditation, if you think that's too fluffy or whatever, discard those labels, right? They're just labels. You can call it mental conditioning like they do in sports. You can call it attention training, right? You're training your brain in a new way. It has a number of benefits, performance, leadership, and well-being, right? It doesn't matter why you come, you're going to get all three, no matter what. Absolutely. So now um, I really enjoyed this discussion. If, I, if our users want to um, either take your class or purchase your book, how do they get in touch with you or where should they go to buy the book? So they can buy the book anywhere fine books are sold. You can find it on Amazon, of course, Mindfulness Without the Bells and Beats. Just put that in the search bar and you can find it. You can find it on uh, cliffsmith.com, C-L-I-F-S-M-I-T-H.com. Uh, that's my website. You can find the book. You can find other information on me. Um, those are probably the two best places to find information in the book and in the course. Okay. Thank you so much. This is amazing. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a great time. You can learn more about our amazing guests and get show notes at consciouslyunbiased.com slash listen. And we want to hear from you. Please subscribe and rate Breaking the Bias on iTunes and Spotify. And drop us a note to let us know if there's a topic that you'd really want to hear about or a guest that you'd love to see on the show. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Bias.